Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Welcome back to Trial and Medical Error. Greg, you are running a little bit late today, but despite your hair and other steps that uh, had to be put in place to have this just right and for you to feel your best. We're going to be jumping into another episode. So I'm glad you could be here today with us, Greg. I, it wouldn't be the same without you. Ah, thanks, Brendan. Yeah, absolutely. I was a little on the fence because I was getting ready, packing for John Fisher's Mastermind Conference in Chicago, which I'm excited to attend. He turned me on to John and He's helped our firm immensely, and hopefully we'll have a chance to speak with him on this podcast sometime in the future. Yeah, uh, looking forward to interviewing him. But today, we are going to talk, it's a bit of an audible, we were going to actually plan to, to talk with John Fisher today, but he's getting ready for the mastermind. So I thought it's a great time to talk about another very relevant and near and dear topic to our hearts, which is trial preparation, because I... And getting ready for a trial that starts on Monday. In rare fashion, you will not be trying it with me. How do you feel about that, Greg? Uh, well, I, I feel bad for you. I do. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, it's a tough case. I don't want to spend a week in Erie, to be quite honest. So I'm okay with it. But I, I do miss you know, the chemistry that we have together. The only problem is, and this is, this is sort of a word for the wise, I feel like I still want to help, and and I've been reaching out to you from time to time and putting my two two cents in, and I know you've been very patient because I really don't have much of a grasp of the facts. There's so much I don't know about the case, and but nonetheless, you've kindly you know, dissuaded me from some of my ideas and told me the theories that you've already formulated based on the facts that are in the case, not the ones that I uh, I kind of make up in my mind. Well, I'm a know-it-all, and you are a better person and a good person to put up with all my know-it-all-isms. So, but yeah, no, I'll miss you. But I think your point about not knowing what the case is about is a good segue into laying the foundation what the case is about generally, and then I'll talk about the way we approach it so that you know people that are getting ready to try their own cases or haven't tried their own cases before can sort of understand the process that you know you and I go through every time we try a case. So. The gist of the case is it's in a hospital, but it's not a medical malpractice case. It is a slip and fall case. Gist of what happened was that an oral surgeon who would had privileges at uh, this facility once a month would do procedures there. And he'd been doing that for decades without any issues. So behind the scenes, the way the surgery center works is they make money by surgeons booking time to perform various outpatient surgeries in their facility. In exchange, they provide the facility, they provide the operating room, they provide a lot of the support staff, and they are supposed to provide a safe facility for the patients and the doctors. So the way that it works at the surgery center is that between procedures, Maintenance people go into the operating room and wipe it down, and then they mop the floors, wet mop the floors, and that's called room turnover. And what we found out in this case is that they had a sort of goofy way of doing things for a long time. So forever and ever, they would, and they would train their maintenance people to not put out a wet floor sign while they're mopping. 
And to this day, despite a lot of different depositions, nobody has been able to tell me why they did it that way. Just seems like that's the way it was always done. It kept being taught that way. And I think from a common sense perspective, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it sounds like they sort of got away with nobody getting hurt from that goofy process for a long time until uh, 2018. And we found out during discovery that a nurse had walked into a room after it had been wet mopped in the turnover process. There were no signs up and she slips and eats it and gets really pretty jacked up and has to be taken out of the room in a wheelchair. And there's an incident report created and they, they do sort of a root cause analysis and they determined that the lack of warning allowing people to go into a freshly wet mopped floor room was the cause of it. And they make this declaration in the incident report. From now on, we will put wet floor signs out at all times, start to finish of the process until the floor is dry. Well, fast forward a few months, they hire a new maintenance person. He testifies that he was trained to do it the old way. Don't put wet floor signs out. And you can probably start to see what happens in this case. Fast forward to uh, July of 2020. Our client, John, oral surgeon, has performed a couple different procedures that day. He's walking in to perform his third procedure of the day. There's no signs out. He walks in, he slips, he falls, and he gets hurt. And that's what the case is about. And certainly there's more to it, as there always are. There's you know, medical causation issues. The defense has come up with some bogus excuses for why our client should have avoided this. But the facts are pretty straightforward. No wet floor sign out. They knew they should have a wet floor sign out. Doctor slips, falls, hurts himself. So with that foundation, you are hoping you can get the case settled for the client. I think most clients want a settlement rather than you know their day in court. That just hasn't happened. I mean, there's always a possibility the case could settle at the courthouse steps or during trial or so forth. But so far, case is not settling. We are four days from picking a jury on Monday. And uh, so you got to have all of your ducks in a row. And that starts with, in my mind, where we sort of began the podcast, which is you've got to establish your team. You have to figure out who is going to be the responsible people in the firm for working up and organizing and then trying the case. In this case, sadly, tear running down my cheek, you're not trying the case with me because we've tried so many cases together and I trust you. But I've got an awesome co-counsel with me, our superstar associate, Maggie, who is going to be trying the case with me, and I think she's going to do a great job. So the assignments for the trial are me, Maggie is the trial lawyers, and then my secretary, Linda. And you need that person, the secretarial person, to be on the same page as the trial lawyers because there's a lot of scheduling issues. There's a lot of uh, just different to-dos that have to be uh, done. So once you form your team, then you form the checklist. And the checklist is basically several weeks out, literally just brain dumping everything that you have to do in the case and to get prepared for trial. So motions in limine, uh, subpoenas, notices to attend, organizing the case, who's going to attend when, looking at your witness list and which witnesses and so forth do you really need to call, and a million other things. How are you going to do your voir dire? Uh, are there any uh, pre-trial briefs or memos of law that you have to put together to, to better orient the court to particular issues and so forth and trying to work things out with the opposing counsel as necessary? There's a lot of different pieces that go into the checklist. And if you don't 
list them all out somewhere. Oftentimes we'll do a spreadsheet or a Word document and a grid and just making sure that everything gets crossed off. You can miss some things and that can cause you a lot of stress and can lead to a poor outcome on the case. And I will say, I'm going to turn the ball over to you here for a second, Greg, because I think in a lot of our trials, you kind of take the lead on a lot of the logistics in planning the trial. And that's one of the things I miss a lot because, you know, Maggie is phenomenal and she's, you know, learning how to try cases, but she hasn't been doing it as long as we have. And you and I sort of have always had that system. So, I mean, how do you approach working up the trial from just making sure all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed? You mean from the logistical point of view? So it's it's interesting because if I don't have the logistics down in terms of where are we staying? Do we have all our experts lined up, whether by videotape or coming into trial uh, live? Do we have their hotel rooms? Do we have their airline tickets ready and booked? What else? Do we have a printer available? Just all those little details, all the way down to what kind of snacks am I going to need when I come home at five o'clock and I'm super hungry, not home, but to my home away from home. Those need to be nailed down for me so that I could focus on the real important stuff, right? The case. So for me, it's just, uh, and, and I do, I lean on whatever paralegal, like whether it be Azalea or, or Linda, formerly Becky, who were working with at the time on the case, I lean on them for their help. And once that's all out of the way, I feel a lot better about things. And one thing I was going to ask you, you mentioned you start you know, a few weeks, I think you mentioned, by kind of having this brain dump and I know you, you probably put it into a checklist of some sort or just any type of list. I don't think we use any standard form. It's just, you know, you kind of, you do that brain dump, like you said, because every case is a little bit different. We should have a standard list and we may actually have one somewhere. I just don't know that we take the time to find it and use it. We can dump our brain a lot quicker. I like to start at least in my mind, right? Just thinking about the theories of the case and how this trial is going to play out, where, you know, what the witnesses the order of the witnesses, you know, just all all of the big picture stuff. I'd like to th start thinking about it as soon as possible. And I know we it's like kind of a ramp up situation, right? You know you have a, a case on the trial list maybe six months or less ahead of time. But for me, I really start to zero in probably, I don't know, two, three months ahead of time. What about you? No, I think that's a really good point. And I mean, I think what's that old chestnut you hear, you know, you wind up trying the cases that you thought were going to settle and you settle the cases that you prepare to try and so forth. For me, for whatever reason, Greg, it just feels like I just wind up trying every case. But no, so, but we're always looking at trial. I mean, we're always working these cases up like they're going to try because that's the best way to do it. And so I think throughout the case, you're thinking about literally, I mean, how often when we're, we're taking a case on, we're looking at the theory of the case, like, okay, let's fast forward a couple years. We're at trial time. How is this going to play out? How is the, the morality play going to look when all is said and done and we're before a jury? So I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm thinking about it with the witnesses that we're calling for depositions and the discovery and so forth. But to your point, when you really are looking down the barrel of trial coming up, yeah, you, you start to plan things out. And absolutely, it's a couple months out. You do your pretrial statement. You start really thinking about it. But I think, no doubt, there are probably firms out there, there's attorneys out there that they just have the case perfectly laid out. They know every in and out of it, you know, months ahead of time. But personally, I am never like that. And I find that with each hour, literally, as I approach trial, 
I'm seeing it in a new light. I'm seeing witnesses' testimony or exhibits in a new light or a different way that I want to present them or not present them at all or different issues. So I think you sort of prepare with a wider net, but understand that things are going to perpetually change and refine and your whole case is going to become more and more laser focused as you get to the start of the trial. And it's interesting along those lines. I think that when we take a case on and we decide to consult experts or decide to file it, and we're thinking about how do we prove this case with an expert, right? Yep. What does our medical expert say or our premises liability expert, our engineer? And we look at that as sort of just like the guiding light through discovery. But when you get on a trial list and you get closer to the time of trial, there's that point where there's like a switch that gets turned, right? And you start thinking about, wait a minute, <laughs> the people who need to decide this case are the people who are sitting in that jury box, right? And, and it's not just a battle of the experts. So I guess the sooner we could flip that switch, the better. And I don't know if there are ways to do it while we're still stuck at discovery. I'm sure there are ways. There's always a way. And I'm many, like you said, many attorneys are doing it that way. One is just to do early focus groups, right? Well, it's too late for that now because mm -hmm. the freaking trial is in four days. So <laughs> that's all in the past. So. Oh, right. But I was just saying, theoretically speaking. No, I know. I'm just busting your chops. But I mean, that's where you got to come with the checklist, though. And I think the other thing, the, the other quick point I want to make about the checklist is that a checklist is a, a way to become more organized at trial. And um, there are a number of jury research studies that have been performed over the past few decades where jurors from real trials were polled and, or, and there was an Arizona project where the jurors' deliberations were actually listened to and recorded and analyzed and, and jurors debriefed afterwards and so forth. And of all these different you know, things that the jury cared about, at the very top of the list, as far as what was compelling, important, persuasive to them was organization by the lawyers. And that if one lawyer was more organized, able to instantaneously call up exhibits, there was no wasting time, no shuffling of papers, that to them was a very significant factor. And that's always stuck with me that you've got to be prepared to put on, you know, the most straightforward, simple, organized case that you can. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. People don't like to have their time wasted between two people that are telling you a story. Who are you more likely to believe? The person that appears to just automatically have it all on hand can simply tell you, or the person that's fumfering around with this theory or that theory or this paper, they don't know where this exhibit is. So the checklist, I think, sets you up for success in having everything together, which I think also bleeds into one of the other checklist factors is, you know, and again, I recognize that probably some of the people listening may not always have the budget for trial support, but I think you and I find trial support from these third-party companies that come in and provide you technician to pull up exhibits and play the videos for you, tremendously helpful because then you don't have to worry about trying to, to show something to the jury yourself or find it. It's literally tell them the number or tell them the line or tell them the deposition that you want to be played and instantaneously it gets pulled up on the screen. And I think that also just sends a message of organization. It's also got to the point now where I think maybe 10 years ago, some of the defense firms didn't want to spend the money on trial support. And so you'd have like a little bit of a presentation advantage. But now, I mean, pretty much every case, both sides are using trial tech. So now it's become, I would say, almost it would be a disadvantage if you weren't 
using a trial support team to show uh, your exhibits and play depositions and so forth without trial or throughout the trial. And the jury is really super impressed by that as well. I don't think uh, most jurors expect that everything's just going to be on a screen for them. All the evidence will be presented on a screen and, and it will be very easy to to see and remember, right? So what other advantages do you think there are? And I, I know we've discussed this before, to having a trial presentation company, play your videotape depositions, but more importantly, have a database for all of your records, discovery, and potential exhibits that you know you're going to use. Well, there's a, a centrally localized sort of uh, repository or a file of everything in the case. You got all the evidence right there. And so when the judge and every judge is different, some judges want all the exhibits pre-marked and they want lists so that they know what's admitted, what's not, what was brought up in the course of you know trial. It just makes it so much easier. But I think the instantaneous response of being able to pull up anything you want from that database anytime you want. Sometimes you can even make it such that the fence can't find it, you pull it up. And now you look like the true like authority that knows everything and, and has everything at the tip of their fingers. But I would actually say, I think you were saying you feel like jurors are impressed. I almost feel like people expect it now because of the the technological age we're in and social media and how quick and immediate everything is these days. I think that jurors would be almost shocked if you were trying to try your case with paper documents and hard documents and walk around showing them a photograph on paper or something like that, rather than it getting pulled up on the the big screen. One thing that I always struggle with when we're getting ready for trial and, and we're using this trial consultant or presentation group, I'm worried that the defense on cross-examination of one of our witnesses will pull out some random medical record, right? I mean, we're always dealing with medical records in our cases and they usually go back 10 years, right? And it could be even a more recent record of treatment after the injury in question. But what I'm worried about is they'll pull up a record on cross-examination and they'll take it out of context. I want to see that record during cross-examination so I could maybe rehabilitate our witness. Do you ever have any concerns that you're just not going to have that at your fingertips unless you bring a big paper binder of every record in the case, which I know you've miniaturized into like six pages on one piece of paper? Hey, because I'm trying to save trees, Greg. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, The unicycler. Yeah, of course. You know, when that document gets pulled up, they're calling it up by a Bates number. You know exactly what they're showing. You lean over to your tech person, say, pull up whatever. And then they've got it right there. You can go look at it. You can refer to it. If you have your big paper database, you can just go pull it up in your binder from the number and have it and then have your tech person call it up for reference and so forth. So again, it just makes it, it makes it more easy to respond more quickly to some of the the stuff that the the other side brings up that you've got to respond to immediately. One of the benefit, I think, that we probably don't rely on as much, but I know a lot of lawyers do, of the tech companies is you've got this sort of uh, shadow juror. I mean, obviously they know you, they know which side you're on, but they don't know much about the case going into it. And you can rely on them and ask them a lot, like, how do you feel like the case is going? What questions do you have? What's working, what's not, and so forth. And I think that they are a good resource. They've actually, a lot of these trial tech people have sat through a gazillion trials and they clearly just from that experience of sitting through trial after trial, they have a good sense of what matters to juries, what doesn't, where things are missing, what's boring them, you know, that kind of thing. So I think they're a great resource. And I'm actually making a mental note 
for this trial to really check in every day with Matt, who will be our trial tech, and, and get his sense of things. No, no, that's actually what I was going to say. And it's so true. They've been through all these trials, just many more than we have, really. And they, they do have valuable feedback as the quote unquote shadow juror. So I want to jump now to, I think it's only once you're starting to prepare for trial that you sort of re-remember, oh yeah, this, the, like I mean, this thing that's happening. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just amnesia to that after the trial, some of the crappiness that goes into preparing for trial is, leaves your mind so you're not as afraid of it the next time around. But I think a big part of trial preparation is also getting your mental game straight and mentally preparing yourself on a lot of different levels for how the process is going to go or inevitably will go or oftentimes goes. So I have basically four categories that I think about. Number one is my persona at trial and getting myself mentally in the right space for trial because I think the trial we talked about that we lost in May, I was so worked up over that case and I just was, I had so much anxiety about it and I, I just was really, really stressed about that case and I think that it, it came through and I wasn't able to get myself centered and be my normal self as much as I would have liked to. On the other hand, look to Corsetti and you were kind enough to bring me in on that case very short notice. And because of that, I, I hadn't had time to perseverate and dwell on it. And I think I was in a wonderful headspace for that case. I felt very relaxed. I just felt good. And I think that you really need to take a step back and think about and just put everything in perspective to get yourself in a, a calm and collected, just emotional state for trial. Okay. And then that bleeds into to get yourself there. I think it's important to have reasonable expectations. And what I mean by that is, you know, certainly we want to get the best outcome for our, our clients, we want to get the best outcome for the firm and so forth, but you can't control it. What's my mantra, Greg, as far as <laughs> trust the process? Yeah, process over product. We cannot control the outcome of the trial. We can only control how hard and what we put into it. And then when you're in trial, I think it's more trying to avoid self-inflicted wounds. And a big self-inflicted wound is being overly aggressive and angry and stressed and everything because it sends exactly the wrong message that you want to the jury. And I think if you remind yourself that you have worked hard on this case, you've put everything that you can into it, and there's really nothing more that you can do other than your absolute best during trial, and who knows what's going to happen. You know, over time, that will win out. And we've certainly had some great victories over the years, you know, but you're going to lose sometimes in preparing yourself for that. And just the variance and randomness that's associated with jury trials with the, just the random group of people that you're going to pick from. You have no control over the random veneer, the initial block of people that shows up to get selected for jury. And while we do our best to pick the best jury possible, you know, generally speaking, we don't have enough information or time available to us to know definitively, are these the best people for our trial? And there's just a lot of, uh, I mean, I don't want to say luck, but there is some luck that's involved in the outcome. Is you, and you just have to embrace that and be yourself, I think. And these are all things I'm literally telling myself right now. Well, it's funny you say be yourself, because that was just running in my mind uh, to add on to what you're saying, because I think the ultimate goal in terms of how you direct your mental state is getting to that point of credibility in front of the jury. 
And one very important concept or, or aspect of that is being yourself. And you have to see yourself making arguments that are, in your own opinion, true to what you believe in. And of course, the facts of the case. I mean, that's why the whole process of getting ready for trial is, is so eye-opening and really something that can't, <laughs> can't be done ahead of time because you have to think about it in this context, this environment of, all right, I'm going to be in front of these 12 strangers, a judge, court reporters, opposing counsel. I need to be honest. I need to be true to myself. Otherwise, you're going to feel so awkward. You're going to feel like a fish out of water in front of those folks in, in that environment, in that courtroom. And so just finding that part of you and remembering that part of you that speaks credibly, speaks the truth, is forthcoming, honest, acts with integrity, that part of you that you express every day in conversations with me, with Maggie, with your family, that's what you have to hone for trial is kind of counterintuitive as it is, right? You're just thinking, oh, I've got to be a great advocate, make amazing arguments. No, it's, I think, more about being yourself if you really want to get to credibility. Yeah. I always think, Brendan, it's kind of a word of advice for you for this upcoming trial. If you talk to that jury, you talk to all the witnesses, the way you talk to us in the office when you're talking about a case. Even when I'm haranguing you about being late for the podcast, Greg, like that? Or or you mean all the other times when I'm really nice and pleasant? No, when you're talking about cases is what I'm talking about. You know, we will call you out, right? Yeah. If you say something that doesn't make any sense. We look at each other as like the peers who, you know, we want to respect us more than anybody else, right? Because we we're colleagues, we work together. Well, think of the same way when you go in front of the jury and get ready to get ready. No doubt. To talk to the jury. And yeah. I, well, and I think that's kind of the amazing thing about trial. It's uh, no matter how long you do it, it's just the, it's the same obstacle that you have to persevere through. Like uh, the um, Ryan Holiday book, The Obstacle is, way, is the Way. And it's your perception of how you look at it. Is it a horrible thing that you've got to figure out? And what if you lose? Or what if you win? Or is it an opportunity, another chance to test yourself? And literally every time we try a case, it's a new test. It's a new test. And you forget about it. You win a case and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. I can't wait to do it again. And you just forget all the stuff you have to do in preparation for it. You lose and you know you kind of remember all the stuff you had to do a bit more, but you're like, I want to get back in there. It's not until you're back in it, facing the same obstacle of this impending trial and how are you potentially going to solve the riddle that is convincing this jury of why you're right and why your client should win? It just sort of never ends. But I think part of that is preparing for problems. And, I, and I'll and uh, just hearken back to, you know, Rick Friedman has that line in uh, on becoming a trial lawyer. It's like, you can do all the work in the world, all the preparation. You've got everything perfectly orchestrated into this beautiful symphony that you're going to be the composer of during the course of the trial. And then the ref, aka the judge, blows the whistle and it turns into a mud wrestling match within two seconds. And everything, you know, all these different things change and there's all these different problems. And you've got to be mentally prepared for that. Just prepare yourself that there are going to be some totally off-the-wall, unforeseen disasters that happen that comes with every single trial. We're going to take those, roll with the punches, keep moving forward in the right direction. But I think it's when you don't prepare yourself for the inevitable issues and problems and headaches that arise that you get more shaken. And when you're planning for them to happen... Well, then your expectations are, I think, more appropriate when things go better than you ever could have expected. Then, oh my God, it's amazing. But when they go 
lousily or there's problems and so forth, hey, you were already in that mind state. You knew this was going to happen. Yeah. Just, you know, one other thing that popped in my mind as you were giving that analogy to a conductor for a symphony is our former partner, Jerry, who always used to say that you are the producer or the director of a play, right? That's what trial work is really all about. And that resonated with me in part because it, it raises the point that we are not the actors, right? We are the producer or the director. And as such, we're not on stage. So I think it's a mistake if you're, when you're getting ready to, for trial to think, well, I'm on stage here. Remember what the jury has to consider first and foremost is the evidence that's going to come out of the mouths of the witnesses, right? Right. Yes, we can persuade them in the end with our advocacy and closing arguments. But at the end of the day, it, I think it's just, you know, we have to remember that we're just there to conduct, as you said. A hundred percent. And I think looking at it that way, it's a more liberating way to try cases, realizing that it's not about you. It's about the story. It's about the jury. And you're there to, yeah, basically be the playwright and the producer of the show and that you're basically there more to narrate, if anything, rather than you've got to carry the ball across the end zone. You've got to be the person that wins the trial it's because it's not true. And if you think of it that way, I think you uh, do yourself and your client a disservice uh, on a lot of different levels. But to take a similar analogy, there is a very important way that I think you help to win trials for us. And Maggie has done this as well. I, I kind of uh, lag in this respect, but creating the scenes, the uh, the exhibits. I was trying to think of the name of the the scenes in a theater. and <laughs> Yeah, right. The set, right? Yeah, sure. It's the set. How do you create the set, meaning exhibits, when you're getting ready for a case, a trial? And how does that impact the way you prepare the case for the jury's ears? So I think, I mean, you do your focus groups, you think through the case, you try to pare things down. But at the end of the day, you think there's this jury on the other side of the jury box, never heard any of this before. And the reality is that they're not hearing what actually happened. Nobody could ever do that. We don't even know precisely what happens and, you know, happened in any of these cases. We weren't there. We're always coming to understand things after the fact. And so we are presenting them our story. And I think it all gets back to story and the focus on really digging through, understanding who your client was, understanding the circumstances, the players, the different actors or characters in this particular morality play and how they fit together and how you can most compellingly tell that story to the jury in a way that's going to make sense to them, that's going to resonate with them. And so I think any of our exhibits are going to start with how are we showing the jury the story? And at least that's the way that I think about it. And so, for example, there's sort of two stories in opening statement. There's the story of what the defendant did wrong. You know, initially, we generally want to start by focus of judgment. The story is told step by step, keeping the jury's interest in like, well, what happened next and what happened next? And then hoping the jury sees the sort of inevitability of the consequences of the bad action before we reveal that to them. So there's the story of what the defendant did. And then later in the opening statement and, and in the case in general, because the I find oftentimes the way that we present the case is simply, it's the actual performance of the story that we told them in opening. So then in opening the second half of your of that play is basically the story of your client. 
and getting the jury to care, getting the jury to understand the challenge that your client ran into as a consequence of bad actions, bad behavior by the defendant, hopefully showing how your client overcame that and helping the jury understand why we are there for money, why the money is important, be it symbolic or it will specifically help or it is for accountability. But I think telling that story and so then all the exhibits, the pictures and so forth are just another way that we get the story across to the jury. So for example, I love trying to find as many pictures of my client doing the things that we said that they used to do and then showing pictures that can help the jury understand how their injuries uniquely keep them from doing that now. So for example, in this particular case, our client injures his back and his shoulder. He was an oral surgeon. He continued to work for a while afterwards until eventually his symptoms just became so significant he couldn't do it anymore. But it's not as though he's wheelchair bound and can't live his life and do things like that. So you have to find those photos that show him doing the unique aspects of his life, mostly being an oral surgeon and things related to that, that he can't do that. And then tying your damage argument, be it through demonstratives and so forth, to those aspects of the person. And now the jury sees in their mind, oh, there he was operating on a patient bent over with his arm up. And he's testifying that while he can still travel around and lecture and so forth, I can understand why that injury to his shoulder makes him not be able to safely perform oral surgery. And that's just an example in this trial of of what I'm thinking about. But I think we, and you must always think a lot about Once you have the story of how you're going to present this, then how are you going to further support that story with hopefully images and other exhibits that kind of, you know, fill in the important blanks? And one last point on that, I think sometimes you don't, either there's advice out there, some people say, every part of your story should be communicated visually to the jury. I don't totally agree with that. I think certain parts of the story that you want the jury to best understand or to have the exact image in their mind, that's what you want to show them. But there's other parts where you'd rather allow their imagination to fill in the blanks and create the image. I think an example would be in Corsetti. We had that battle over, should we show the damage to the vehicle or not? And right or wrong, I felt strongly we shouldn't show it because the way the crash was described, I think most people would have imagined in their mind that the damage was much worse than it was. And that's just one example of how you have to think about where you want to use exhibits and images and pictures and where you may not. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense from watching you prepare openings and closings that for you, you very much keep the exhibit in mind as you're structuring the organization of your opening or closing or keep the exhibits that you might use in mind. And sometimes there could be a whole section of your closing, which is sort of generated or springs from a particular exhibit that you think is really cool or that comes to mind. Is that sort of how you you think you construct and create your openings and closings in a way? Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, I can tell you this will air or be produced after the, the trial's over. And every case is different, but I have a very limited number of images I'm going to show in this particular opening. So first, I'm going to show a section of the incident report from the fall that happened two years before our client fell that really highlights the knowledge and the declaration of the change that was supposed to be made by the hospital, but which they didn't actually carry out 
I think it's a very important piece of information. So I want the jury to actually see there was this actual document. These are their actual words. So we'll show that. Then later in the undermining section, and just to pivot off for a second, for anybody listening that hasn't tried a lot of cases, the general structure of the opening statements that I give is introduction, rule, story with focus on the defendant, who we are suing and why we are suing, undermining, aka putting things in context, like the Keith Mitnick approach that feels most comfortable to me, transition into damages with the David Ball section. One of the most important questions the judge is going to give you is how much money is it going to take to make up for the harms and losses, and pointing out that you have to give them that evidence. You have to show them all the bad stuff that happened to the plaintiff, not for sympathy purposes, but because you have a job to do to prove the, the, the case of the jury. And the jury has a job to do to base their decision only on the evidence that they hear in trial, no outside factors. And then that pivots into story of the plaintiff, injury of the plaintiff. And then depending on that, I'll have a couple different ways I tie up my opening. And then peppered in there throughout are different images or exhibits. So in this particular case, what I'm planning to do is in the undermining section, where you have to take every core key defense that they're raising and destroy it through putting it in context, they are trying to claim that there supposedly was a, a maintenance person actively mopping when our client walked in, and so he should have seen him regardless of the fact there was no wet, wet floor sign. So they produced this 3D image like a week before trial that they took, showing the whole area and very misleadingly showing different people in it. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to use that to my advantage rather than trying to fight you know, the admissibility of those exhibits because I think I'd probably lose that argument. So I, what I'm doing is I'm taking a still from the 3D that I think encapsulates their argument. And first I address, look, you're going to hear, and there's evidence that strongly supports that it was not like this, that this cleaning person was not in here. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that that was the case and show that image. And it's from the door looking into the room. And in the back of the operating room, the maintenance person has his back to where our client doctor was walking in. And you can point out, look, he's dressed like everybody else. He looks no different than anybody else. There's nothing to signify there's any active mopping going on whatsoever. And then I'm going to juxtapose that with the exact same image with, as it should have been, a wet floor sign superimposed in the door. So I just, little Photoshop action that you know I'm good at and love to do, put the wet floor sign in there. And I think it's pretty compelling that had that been in there, that would have served as an important warning and cue to our doctor to either not go in or just take that extra careful steps as he walked in. It's the same thing. If you walked onto a nice skating rink, you know, in your regular shoes and you didn't know, you would immediately fall and wipe out and hurt yourself. If you know, anybody you see it at, at hockey games can walk on the ice, no problem, because they're cued, they're prepared, and they know how to do that. So I'm going to show that. And then I'm going to end with some, what I think are uh, compelling image you know, photographs of my client operating ahead of time, working outside, which there are certain types of working outside activities he can't do anymore that tie into the shoulder to really show that, no, this is what he used to do. These are the parts of body that he, the parts of his body he needed to do it. And now his injury prevents him from doing that, but does not prevent him from doing a lot of the other things in life. Because that's one of the arguments. Oh, this guy's fine. He can, he's traveling around, he's teaching and so forth. Big deal. He's not hurt. And it's just the defense glossing over the 
unique way that this doctor's injuries uh, have impacted him. So, I mean, getting back to the process of getting ready for a trial, if you had to identify a single aspect of that process, an element, uh, whether it's re-reviewing all the depositions or writing your opening statement or writing your closing argument, what part of the process hones you in the most, creates the most focus for you in terms of just distilling the case down to its core essence? I think it's really writing the story out in preparation for opening, but really understanding the story. Because once you have the story of how this happened and the story of the impact that it's had on your client, and I mean, you've got to get it as whittled down and narrowly focused as you can, that is the most important thing. Because then that shows you that the rest of the trial is showing that precise story and showing that the story that you told the jury at the beginning, by closing, you can tell them, see, I told you that's what it was and that's what it turned out to be. And then that's going to guide all of your other uh, way you present the case. It's going to guide which witnesses you present. It's going to guide which evidence you show. It's going to guide what exhibits you use and so forth. It's going to guide which of the defenses are more important now versus which are not. Some become irrelevant depending on how you craft your story and how you approach your theory of the case. So I think, at least I found in this case, that sitting down, writing out the opening, revising it, rethinking through it, going back, because what happens then you go, oh, let me go back and read this deposition over here and re-understand what this person said. And you see what actually they said might have meant that you didn't catch the first time and so forth. And you look at a different document and you start to really fully have the grasp on the universe of important information in the case. So that would be the most important, which takes me to the last point that I wanted to talk about today that strikes me, is inevitably during preparation for cases, no matter how good your facts are or rough your facts are, you're always going to get confronted with arguments from the defense, or you're going to learn things that are problematic about your case on first blush from a focus group. And it can be really disheartening and it can get you down in the dumps. At least I find that I get, dang it, you know, we're now we're screwed and I don't know how we overcome this, but preparing yourself to always look at that everything, everything has another side to it and applying the quote judo law to the case. And again, going back to mental state, putting yourself in the mind state that there are going to be a number of problems or conundrums that you have to figure out and you don't just get knocked over and knocked down from the initial presentation of it, no matter how much of a gut punch it is, because a good trial lawyer can always find a strong way to you know, recast what at first look appears to be a killer factor problem for your case. And the more I've done this, the more I've realized that can be what really distinguishes great trial lawyers from average trial lawyers is their ability to see through or see things in a different light from a different perspective. And, you know, you've seen it a million times, Greg, where you can take something that the defense thought sometimes and you can turn it into a part of your story that's actually really helpful to you. There are different arguments that sometimes the defense, it just hits you on the head. It just seems so obvious. It was, this is great for the defense, but as you think through it, you can actually turn it to help yourself. So I think that's kind of a, a secondary part of as you work through the story and you confront what the defense is going to say 
that's a big part of the of the process is sticking with thinking through how do you repurpose reframe the problems with your case because there will always be problems with the case yeah that, one little phrase that you know somebody came up with along the line some other great trial attorney i'm sure that i try to keep in mind is what is the one way to frame your case so that if the jury believes every argument and every piece of evidence presented by the defense your side plaintiff side still wins. Yep. I think that was Joe Freed was one of the people that uh, that coined that phrase. Maybe one day we'll get to interview him on here because I hear uh, rumors that one day, you know, at one point in his career, he was a medical malpractice lawyer. But you're 100%. Like, how can the defense be 100% right and we still win? And trying to think through that. And uh, and that's the fun of it. You know, once you get over just the the depression that sets in when you first get uh, blasted with different arguments or goofiness from defense experts and so forth is thinking about how you reframe and put everything in the best context to tell the most compelling story and take away all the the points of power from the defense. Yeah. When you get bad news, someone tells you about your case or a weakness of your case, or you discover a weakness as you're reading an expert report, don't look at it negatively. Look at it as uh, fuel to your fire of figuring out how to deal with it and overcome that defense. Yeah. And I think that just goes with that mental game and the perpetual challenge that trying cases poses. It is not easy. You know, it just isn't. It's always tough, but that's what I think makes it so great is the challenge of always trying to deal with the obstacle and trying to overcome it and trying to to use it to make yourself better and turn, hopefully make our clients better. Well, I'd just like to say, if anyone's still listening, I think at this point we have made up the time that was wasted by my tardiness. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> at, at Robert Ingalls' expense, our awesome uh, Law Pods producer. But yeah, no, this was good. And uh, trial on Monday and see how it goes. And I'm excited to get in there and hopefully we're able to get a great group of people to decide the case and things go our way. Certainly uh, working hard to make it happen along with Maggie. So hopefully we have a good podcast in the future to, to report a positive outcome. Well, good luck, Brendan and Maggie. All right, Greg, until next time, uh, thanks for listening to the Trial and Medical Error podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.